Well, it's officially December, if you haven't noticed yet. How, how did that happen? Like, I swear it was December, like September, like last week. But uh, here we are. We're in December, and that means uh, we're inching closer and closer to Christmas. Maybe your kids are, are keeping count already, how close we're getting. I love the Christmas season. The Christmas season means lots of things, but uh, I think one of the most distinguishing features of Christmas is singing. That is singing Christmas songs. And every year the debate continues, right? When is it appropriate to begin singing Christmas songs? (laughs) Some people who are liturgy nerds like me think you should wait all the way until after Advent, so not until Christmas Day, if you're doing it right. Um, Some people say it's okay to begin uh, after Thanksgiving. Some people say after Halloween. And some people say you can begin sometime in mid-July, if you like. (laughs) You love it that much. But whatever your opinion uh, on, on this matter, in the spirit of singing at Christmas, we are spending the Advent season looking at some of the, the earliest Christmas songs there are in the Bible. There's a collection of four songs in the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah that have become known as the servant songs. Four of them is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which Cam so excellently preached last week. Today's Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, then Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, and then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. These four servant songs, and I'm calling them Christmas songs because they all have to do with what Christmas is all about, which is the coming of the Messiah, whom the New Testament identifies as Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. These are some of the earliest songs about who the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to do. And therefore, I love them because they're, they're such a beautiful angle onto the person and the work of Christ from the prophecies of Isaiah. So last week in the first servant song, Isaiah 42, we saw that the Messiah, Jesus, will be marked by two things especially, and that is gentleness and justice. Today, in the second servant song in Isaiah 49, I want you to see that Jesus is the desire of nations. I'm pulling that from a song we sang earlier. It's a beautiful hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We sang this. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. So I want you to say, I want you to see today how Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. He's the hope of all the earth. He's the desire of every nation. Would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? This is the second servant song. It's Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing. You should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Almighty God, we are reminded this Advent season that the darkness of our ignorance and our doubts cannot overcome the light and the life of your holy word. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words that we just read, would shine your light now upon us and waken us again to the hearing and to the living of this radiant truth. And we ask this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Would you be seated, please? I think, the, I think one of the best ways to understand what the servant songs are all about is to think about them as like the job description for the Messiah. Everybody knows what it's like to have a job description, right? You probably have one for your job. If you don't, you might want to get one. They're really helpful. Uh, it's helpful because it gives you clarity about what you're supposed to be doing and about who you're supposed to be working with. In fact, I actually believe that these four servant songs were incredibly instrumental for Jesus to discover the nature of his calling, for him to discover the nature of his calling as the Messiah. In other words, how did Jesus know when he came to earth that he was supposed to be gentle with the bruised reeds of the world? That is the most broken, the most vulnerable, the most wounded. I think it's because for 30 years of his life, he had internalized the servant song of Isaiah 42 that said, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see, he was gentle to sinners and to sufferers, the sick, the poor, and the powerless, because his job description in Isaiah showed him the way. So like a job description, Isaiah 49 today is going to show us what Jesus is supposed to do as the Messiah and who he is supposed to work with. And so I want to ask those two questions of our text today. Number one, to what is he called? And secondly, to whom is he called? To what and to whom? First of all, to what is he called? Interestingly, Isaiah 49 narrows it down pretty specifically. He says the primary calling of the Messiah, of Jesus, is to speak. I love Isaiah 49 is pretty unique in the servant songs because the servant himself is speaking about himself. In Isaiah 42, last week, God was speaking about the servant, but here in Isaiah 49, the servant is speaking about himself. So it shifts from biography to autobiography. And what is the first word out of the servant's mouth? Listen. Listen. Verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. By the way, this is how we know that the servant is no ordinary prophet. It's not Isaiah or any other, anybody else in the book. It's a greater messianic figure. Because no other prophet in the Bible says, listen to me. They all say, listen to the word of the Lord. Only God in the scripture says, listen to me. So when the servant says, listen to me, he's saying, I am God. I am the word of the Lord. Listen to me. Give me your attention. And then the servant proceeds to explain the origin of this calling to speak for God. In the second half of verse 1, he says that he was called to this even from his mother's womb. This is in our vernacular. He's saying, I was born for this. I was made for this very calling. And in verse 2, he speaks of how he was equipped for this calling. He says, he, that is God, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. It makes sense. Jesus is called to speak, and so the Lord equips him with a mouth like a sharp sword. 
A sword is sharpened so that it has maximum effectiveness. Just like dull knives won't do the job. Ever tried to cook with dull knives? Not very fun. So the same thing with a dull sword. It's less effective. So what he's saying is Jesus' words will be effective. They'll be sharp. They will accomplish the purpose for which they are sent. An arrow is polished by removing any of the rough places or the unevenness on the shaft so that it flies as straight as possible. What we call aerodynamics, right? This is what makes an arrow accurate. Saying Jesus' words will be accurate. They will hit the target for which they are aimed. And interestingly, a sword is best used for targets that are close up, right? For hand-to-hand combat. While arrows are shot at targets that are far away. And as we will see in our second point, Jesus speaks this message with power both to those who are near and to those who are far, far away. Verse 2 also speaks of the servant being hidden in God's hand. There's a, a concealed nature to him. He's hid in God's quiver until the proper time to be revealed. I think this is the servant's way of saying that he's, his equipping and his training took place out of sight, hidden from others until the time appointed by God. It's like the servant was concealed in God's quiver until God decided it was time to pull the arrow out, knock it to the bow, and release it to the world. Whereas Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, friends, in the fullness of time he came to earth, at the appointed time he began his public ministry, roughly 30 years of age. But every moment up until that was preparation for this moment. He was being sharpened as a sword. He was being polished as an arrow. He was prepared for maximum effectiveness. 2022 is supposed to be a Winter Olympics year. We'll see if it happens, (laughs) both for COVID and for political reasons. But all this language in Isaiah 49 makes me think of athletes that train their whole life for the Olympics. They train and they train and they train mostly out of the public's eye so that they can appear on a global stage and do the thing that seems they were born to do. Just like nail a triple axle or something, you know? So also, Jesus was called, he was trained, he was equipped by God to appear on a global stage at just the right time and to do what he was born to do. That is to speak the word of God to us. The New Testament calls him the word made flesh. He is what God has to say to this world. And in this God is glorified, the servant displays the beauty of God in being God's word to us. So brothers and sisters, it makes sense then. If Jesus' primary job description is to speak, then what is our primary job? Listen. The first word of the passage, listen to me. I have something to say to the whole world. Or as God the Father said of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration in Mark 9, 7, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So before I leave this point, I just want to ask one question of us. That is, to whom are you listening? Who is the primary voice that commands your ears and your heart? Whose voice tells you what to believe about God, about yourself, about your identity, your purpose, about the world? Friends, you know there are no shortage of people speaking in this world. 
To whom are you listening? Are you listening to the broader culture? Uh, the social imaginary that moves like the tides and it tells you what is or what is not acceptable based upon the cultural standards? Is that what's captured your ear and your heart? Are you listening to political punditry on the right or on the left? It tells you what to think, how to treat those who disagree with you. Are you listening to the lies of the evil one? The scripture calls him the deceiver, the accuser, who whispers lies to you every day and night. He whispers to you, God doesn't love you. You'll never change. You'll never be happy in this marriage. You're all alone in this world. Are you listening to yourself? <laughs> I'm talking to myself every day, all the time, aren't you? Are you listening to yourself? Do you think only you know what's best for you? Are you your highest authority? Interestingly, that's how we got into this mess in the first place. <laughs> because we chose to listen to ourselves and to the devil's lies more than the voice of God. Friends, Isaiah 49 is telling us that Jesus' primary job description is to speak the truth to us and that he deserves a listening. There's no one more qualified to speak to us because he created us. There's no higher authority on what it means to be a human being, but also because he died for us. There's no one who loves you more. There's no one more committed to your good. As a pastor, I often get asked a litmus test type questions, as you can imagine. People want to know about our church before coming. So they ask any variety of any hot button issues. Uh, one of the most popular is what does your church believe about sexuality? My answer is always the same, and I, I don't consider it to be a dodge. My answer is always the primary question we are asking of our, in our church is, who is Jesus? So you have to start there because it matters who is trying to tell you what to do with your body. Who is this person? If he's a distant deity who issues cold edicts from some faraway th throne, then fine, ignore him. Why should you listen? But if he is God... He's the creator of all things who has come down into our world to suffer and to die for us, to save us from sin, death, and hell. If he's done all that for me, and if he loves me that much, then yeah, I'll listen. I'll do whatever he says. That's the question we're asking in this church. That's what we're asking in this text. Who is Jesus? What's his primary calling? His primary calling is to speak. And therefore, our primary response is to listen to obey that word, to trust him, that is good. Secondly, let's ask, to whom is he called? To whom is he called? Well, first of all, we kind of see to whom he is called to report. And this, is, this is a big part of a job description too, right? Who do you report to? You need to know that. In verse 4, the servant is wrestling with discouragement. He's wondering whether he has labored in vain. Maybe it's those times in Jesus' life when he spoke the word of the Lord and no one listened. When the religious leaders rejected him or when his, even his own hometown refused to believe in him. I love verse 4 because it reveals that the servant is a real human being. He's just like you and I. He's wrestling with whether his calling and his life work has been all for nothing. But he said, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, meaninglessness. But then, he remembers to whom he reports. 
And the ultimate fruit of his work is not up to him, but up to God. He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense, that is my effectiveness, my reward, my compensation is with my God. See, he reports to God and God alone decides the efficacy of his work. The servant's job is to be faithful. God's job is to give the servant strength and success as he determines. But then the boss turns and he shows the servant just how effective he's going to be. And this answers the heart of our second question. To whom is he called? We know he's called to speak, but to whom is he called to speak? To whom is he sent? And the answer is to the ends of the earth. You got hints of it in verse 1 when the coastlands are called to listen. The peoples from afar are summoned to attention. But God makes it explicit in verse 6. This is God, the boss, speaking to his servant. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God says, As amazing as it would be, For you to rescue the nation of Israel from exile, to restore them back to the land, to redeem them for all their sins, I have something even more amazing in mind. You're not just going to be a light for one nation, but for all nations. You're going to take my salvation to the ends of the earth. In fact, friends, this was the plan from the beginning. If you trace the story of the scriptures, the plan was always for God to choose one man and through that one man to bring blessing to the entire world, to all nations. What this means is that Jesus is not the first person to have this job description. It actually started all the way back with Adam. Adam was created and called by God to be his servant. And if he was faithful to God in the Garden of Eden, the plan is that blessing was spread from the garden to the whole of creation. But Adam failed. He did not listen to the word of the Lord, and he was exiled from the garden. And then it was Abraham's job description. And God chose Abraham, and he called him to be his servant. Listen, in Genesis 12, 2, he makes it explicit. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's the plan. One man and one nation unto all nations. But Abraham, the nation that came from him, Israel, also failed because they did not listen to the word of the Lord and they were exiled from the promised land. But now, Isaiah 49, God calls and he commissions a new servant. And this servant, Jesus, the Messiah, will not fail. He is everything that Adam and Abraham and Israel were supposed to be. And brothers and sisters, he is everything that you were supposed to be. He came to this earth to live the life that we should have lived. He came to die the death that we should have died for our sins. He came to rise again from the dead to rescue all who trust in him from the exile of their sin and death and to bring them into the promised land, a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with God forever. And friends, on that day, on that last day, we will see just how effective Jesus was at his job description. The Apostle John got a preview of it in Revelation 7. You know what he saw? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, 
from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So to whom is the servant called? Because he is called to those both near and far. To the religious and the irreligious, to those seeking for God, to those running from him to those you would least expect. But notice, friends, in our passage, God places the emphasis on those who are far away. He says it's too light. That means it's too small to just go to one nation. I will make you as a light for all nations, and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friends, I think he puts the emphasis there because it is the tendency of God's people to be content with those who are already near. It is. It is our tendency to turn inward on ourselves, our people, our ministries, our life together. And God says, that's too light. It's too small. Think bigger. Think beyond. Think outward. And so, brothers and sisters, in closing, I want to ask you, to whom are you called? Because guess what? This is our job description, too. To follow Jesus wherever he goes, and he's always going to those who are far away. So to whom are you going? To whom are you called? Who are the people you've given up on because it seems so hopeless? Maybe that's precisely where you need to go. Because here's the thing, here's the whole premise of this sermon. Is that the people that are most far away are longing for Jesus whether they know it or not. There's this really interesting line in the previous servant song, Isaiah 42, verse 4. It says this, The coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands wait for his law. That is, those who are far away are waiting for God's word to come to them. They are hungry for it. They are restless until they rest in the one for whom they were made. So how do they hear unless we go to them? Speak to them. Whether those near or far away, the gospel has been spoken to you. It truly is good news of great joy for all people. There's this new uh, biopic, biopic, how do you say that? A movie about someone's life? Biopic? That's what I'm going to say. It's it's out, I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. It's about the life of C.S. Lewis. It's about how he, if you know his story, how he went from a hardened atheist to the most renowned Christian writer of the 20th century. And the film is entitled, and I love this title, The Most Reluctant Convert. That's a quote from his book, Surprised by Joy, where Lewis recounts how he became a Christian. And I want to leave this with you because he was one who was far, far away. Listen to what Lewis writes. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and in the Trinity term of 1929 I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert convert in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such, ter- such terms. 
It says the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? But properly understood, this plums the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Friends, I think there are a whole lot more reluctant converts out there. I think I know because I feel like I'm one of them. But those reluctant converts who have found that his compulsion is our liberation. Because Jesus is the desire of every nation. He is the joy of every longing heart. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us as your people, that you would bless us, you would make your face to shine upon us. Lord, we pray you would do all that, though, so, so that blessing would go beyond us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Lord, with the psalmist, we say, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Lord, help us to listen to you and to follow you wherever you take us. For your name's sake, for your glory, that your salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.